Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast. I am some guy named Dr. Andy Rourke. I'm not your host, though. Not this week. Mm-mm. This is the solo debut of practice management goddess Stephanie Goss. That's right. She's taking the reins, uh, letting letting me uh, letting me relax and recharge because she's amazing, and she is tackling a great one for the mailbag that is straight up the HR alley, and, um, I, you know, it's um, it's all Stephanie Goss's wheelhouse. I just, I would just be in the way, and so I'm out of the way, and I am going to hand this over to Captain Goss. Let's get into this episode. And now, the Uncharted Podcast. And we are back. It's me and wait, this isn't Andy Rourke's voice. That's right, guys. This week's podcast, it's just me. I am Stephanie Goss, practice manager. Well, I can't really say that anymore since I'm not in practice full time. I am the director of community development for Uncharted Veterinary Conference is my new official title, um, and I'm coming to you guys solo this week. That is right. Andy is off this week, so it is just me, and we are going to tackle um, one that has been in the mailbag for a while, and it's right up my alley. Um, and when Andy and I started talking about this, he's like, you know, I don't really have a whole lot to contribute to this one. This is uh, this is an HR one. This is all your speed. So I'm going to tackle this one by myself. So let's get into it. I got an email in the mailbag from a doctor who said, get your groovy music from the 60s ready for this topic if you are up for it, which is right up my alley because I love music from the 60s. Fun Stephanie fact, um, my older brother was a sound engineer and overnight DJ for our local oldies radio station, and I grew up listening to uh, music from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and I was, you know, the kid who would record the radio onto tapes and listen to see whether my brother had actually read our dedications out loud on the radio. Anyways, Back to the topic at hand, this one, uh, this one ties into some groovy music. So this one says a team member approached my manager yesterday, complaining that another employee smelled like marijuana when they arrived to work. This employee didn't show any signs of being incapacitated during their shift or any other day. And I never smelled that scent when I was around them. However, I did hear this person mention that their partner's family owns a marijuana farm. I live in a state where recreational marijuana use is legal. Am I being too much of a square to think that this is worrisome? How do I approach this subject to the team member who was accused and with the accuser? Sincerely, Dr. Never Inhaled. Um, I love this one because I think that it is something that is becoming an issue for more and more of us. There are more states where marijuana is becoming uh, legal. I live in one of them in Washington state. And um, so there's a lot to unpack with this one. And so um, rather than starting with headspace on this one, um, we are going to start with two of my very favorite HR places to start. And the first one is what does the law say? 
So um, tip number one, when you're thinking about handling an issue like this with your practice, the first thing that I would say is that you need an employment attorney for your practice. And if you don't have one, this is where as a practice owner, as a practice manager, you really need to not skimp and you need to get one. You can have somebody on retainer to review an issue like this, but checking with legal counsel to know what the actual um, law and implications for you and your state and also how it's relevant to the national laws because uh, marijuana use is still illegal at the national level. And so there's some conflicting concerns for those of us who are in states where marijuana use is actually legal. So um, this uh, doctor, Dr. Never Inhaled, uh, let me know that they were uh, in Illinois. And so I took a look at uh, the information that uh, was available actually on their state employment website. And there was some great information about the actual ruling. And so there actually are a bunch of provisions in the law here that um, are helpful for employers who want to maintain drug-free workplaces. And so um, in looking at their act, nothing in it prohibits an employer from adopting a zero tolerance or a drug-free workplace policy or employment policies that concern drug testing consumption, storage, uh, smoking, or use of cannabis in the workplace or on call, um, provided that all of the policies are applied in a non-discriminatory manner. They also did not exclude anything um, from requiring uh, to permitting an employee, excuse me, from being under the influence or using in the employer's workplace or while performing job duties and on call. And nothing in the act limits or prevents employers from disciplining, disciplining employees or terminating employment of an employee for violating any of the employer's uh, policies or workplace drug policy. So the good news is, is that um, most of the time, when there are states that every, I have now lived in two states where marijuana use is legal as an employer. Um, the first thing I would say is to talk to your employment attorney. However, if you are a manager, you're not sure if you have an employment attorney, if you have a practice owner who is hesitant to have someone on retainer, the first thing I would do would be to check with your state employment uh, website because it is often a treasure trove of information from an HR perspective. And so I would look there. The other thing that can be a great resource is a lot of state Chamber of Commerce programs have, uh, if you're a state Chamber of Commerce member, you may have access to an employment law attorney through your state. California has a great uh, state employment attorney program that um, we always leveraged as California Chamber of Commerce members when I was living there and uh, running a practice there. And so look at what your resources are because you need to know what does the actual law say. And then parallel to what the actual law says. The other the other thing you need to take a look at is one of my favorites, and I'm kind of disappointed that Andy's not here to hear me say this. Um, but as usual, I am going to say, what does your handbook say? <laughs> and so um, the reason that that is so important here is that processes protect everyone. The reason why we have processes and protocols and policies is that they are protecting both our 
employees and ourselves as employers. And so uh, the first place you should look is what is what does your handbook currently say? Do you have a drug-free workplace protocol? Do you have policies about um, substance abuse at work? If you don't, that's the first place that you need to start. If you do, you need to dive into what does your policy actually say um, and make sure that it covers some bases. And so looking at this, looking at that this issue and looking at We've had a lot of questions in the Uncharted community and in a lot of the manager groups that I participate in about um, drug abuse or substance abuse at work, um, coming to work under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And so I figured it would be fun for us to just kind of go through some of the things that you should think about from your employment handbook perspective. The number one thing for me, besides the fact that you absolutely need to have policies and protocols in your handbook, for the love of God, you guys, we have to be getting employee signatures. When you have protocols and processes, they do you absolutely no good in terms of protecting yourself or in protecting your employees if you can't document to an outside agency that they received the policy. So for everything that is in your, for your handbook as a whole, you need a receipt. Um, and that receipt agreement needs to spell out that they have read the policies and that they are agreeing to abide by the policies. That is the only thing that will help cover your butt from an employer perspective, if there's a problem down the road, because you can give it to them as part of their onboarding process. But if you don't have documentation that shows that they received it and that they agreed to uphold the policies contained in your handbook, it does you no good. When it comes to drugs in the workplace and setting policy, I took a look at what I know I have in my handbook. And then I actually um, did some research for you guys. And I took a look at what the federal recommendations were. And one of the great resources for me as a manager is uh, the SHRM website. That's the Society for Human Resource Management. And I strongly advocate as a practice to have a a membership um, to it because they have a ton of resource information for HR. And so I double checked, um, I double checked the federal employment law websites and was looking at uh, SHRM and then taking a look at what was in my handbook. And the places, the places that I would start would be um, when it comes to drugs and alcohol and having a drug-free workplace, I think where you have to start is the purpose. You have to spell out to them, why do you actually have a drug-free workplace policy? And um, it, it could be for your protection. It could be for their protection. But you need to spell out why you want to have it. And then um, the second thing that you need to spell out is what are the rules? What are the things that you are absolutely not going to tolerate in your business? And it should be pretty specific. If they are not allowed to be under the influence, if you want to require them to um, keep prescription medication in the labeled bottle that it came in, 
um, so that you can document that they have been prescribed prescription medication. It can be as granular as you need or want it to be, but you should spell out the, the specifics of what are you not going to tolerate in your business. And then most of us have the section that says, we are a drug-free employer. We are dr- we have a drug-free workplace. Um, no, you know, substance abuse and or um, coming to work under the influence will not be tolerated. Where most of us in veterinary medicine fall short is the rest of the spelling out that needs to be done. And so I'm going to break down some of those sections for you guys so that you have an idea of the level of things that really should be in a thorough policy when it comes to drugs and alcohol at work. So you have to have your purpose. Why are you having the policy? And you have to talk about the rules. What are you not going to tolerate? And then then the other things that should be spelled out are, how are you going to keep their information confidential? It is medical information and it is required by law for you to keep it confidential. And so they should know what are the protections that are being afforded to them as employees when it comes to their private medical information. When it comes to suspicion at work, this is where you need to spell out what are you going to do if you if you have a suspicion. And I'm going to go into, into depth about what some of those steps are because that's actually one of the number one questions that I get asked when it comes to I, I think I have someone like, like Dr. Never inhaled. I think I have someone who might have, ha, might be high or might, might be drunk at work. And what do I, what do I do about this? So we're going to dive into that. But when it comes to the handbook, you need to spell out what are your requirements for testing? So the things where reasonable suspicion you need to say, you need to define reasonable suspicion for them. And for me, that, that is, the when, when this incident is happening, the where and for what reasons. And you need to be really clear for them about painting a picture of what reasonable suspicion looks like. Things, um, things that you might note as being observed for reasonable suspicion might be odors. So smell of alcohol, smell of marijuana, um, smelling, uh, like, like, um, smelling, smelling like they, they just literally smoked out in their car before they walked in the door. Um, movements, are they unsteady? Are they fidgety? Are they very dizzy? Are their eyes dilated? Are their pupils constricted? Do they have involuntary eye movements, watery eyes? Is their face blushed? Are they sweating profusely? Do they look confused? Do they have a blank look on their face? Things like speech. Do they have slurred speech? Are they speaking very slowly? Do they have the inability to verbalize thoughts? All of these things are things that can happen to us during the normal course of a a day. Maybe not all of them, right? I'm probably not going to smell like booze at work and I may not smell like pot either. But um, for example, the inability to verbalize thoughts. I have plenty of times where I get stuck and my brain is like, what is that? What is that word? And I am having a hard time painting a picture of what that looks like when someone is under the influence versus not under the influence is the really important part here. I am one of those people that turns bright red when I'm embarrassed or when I'm hot or worked up. 
if I normally am flushed and I am under the, someone suspects that I might be under the influence, it may include differences like the shade of flush on uh, my face or the degree to which I appear flushed, right? And the point of all of this documentation and the point of painting the picture here of what this person looks like, what you're actually seeing is to try and describe the differences between their normal and the abnormal, because you're not trying to diagnose the situation. You just want to be really specific about what you're seeing so that you can prove that you're applying your policies fairly, because reasonable suspicion is reasonable suspicion for a reason. You don't have to have proof before you act on something, but you do have to have the documentation to prove that you're applying your policies fairly across the board to your team. So you need to spell out what is reasonable suspicion and when are you going to require testing? Are you going to require testing anytime that there's an accident in your practice? Are you going to require testing only after reasonable suspicion has been documented? Um, Are you going to require testing if you smell alcohol or drugs on someone? What, what are you, what are your requirements as a business? And this is where, again, you need to check with your employment lawyer because you need to make sure that your policies are in line with your state law as well as um, federal HR laws here. And then after you spell out when are you going to require testing, the next piece should be what are your testing procedures? So this is the practical information on where they're going to go and how they're going to get there. And it's really important here that you are separating out your information on suspicion of alcohol use at work from drug use at work because um, you th- they can they can be two separate issues and they can be from an HR perspective processed in two separate ways. And so I have two separate sections: one for if I suspect alcohol. Um, at work and one if I suspect illegal drugs because alcohol is legal um, like marijuana. And so if you're in a state where marijuana is legal, I might separate marijuana out into a third category. Again, here's where your, your HR attorney comes in handy. Write the policies and lots of state um, employment websites have sample policies that you can use for a place to start, but write it and then have somebody take a look at, at it for you and make sure that you're covering your legal bases. And then the last big piece um, that needs to be spelled out is what are the consequences? And this needs to this needs to fall into three categories. So you need to spell out for them what happens if they refuse to test? What happens if they test positive? And then what happens afterwards, regardless of whether they test positive or negative? And you need to be very clear. You need to spell out things like, are you going to require them? to wait at home pending the results of their test? Are you going to pay them for that time that you require them to wait? If you have reasonable suspicion and you send somebody for a test and they have to wait 24 hours for those test results to come back and the results come back negative, are you going to pay them for their time? That is all things for you to decide in terms of what your policies are going to be. And so the important part is, is that you need to spell all of those things out for them because they need to know upfront 
what the consequences would be. And then as far as the afterward part, you need to do your due diligence to spell out for them if they have a positive test for drugs or alcohol and they've been under the influence at work, you need to spell out the assistance that might be available to them as an employee. One of, I mean, Andy and I have talked about this so many times on the podcast, having an employee assistance program, um, having a third party that you can direct them to, but you also need to know what is your, what is your insurance cover? If you offer insurance as an employer, what are their, what are their options for getting help and getting treatment if there is an issue and or a positive test? And so spelling out the consequences section, and then the other pieces that need to be spelled out in terms of separate policies would be, like I mentioned before, the confidentiality. This is medical information and fun HR fact, you are required to keep your employees' medical-related information as a separate part of their employee file. So I know that there are a lot of you who are listening right now who are thinking, well, I just have a folder, like a hanging file for each person, and I just drop it all in there and date order. You have to have a, a portion of their file that is completely separate and not bound to the rest of their Um, employee file where you keep their medical information confidential. So you need to spell out for them what you're going to do to protect them and how you're going to uphold confidentiality. You need to spell out for them what are, what are premise, what do premise inspections look like? What are their rights to privacy? What does it include and what does it not include? You absolutely as a private employer have the right to inspect uh, if you have, if they have lockers, um, if you provide them uh, desks in, in the clinic or they have locking cabinets, whatever that looks like in your practice, you need to spell out the rights to what their privacy may include or does not include. And then you need to spell out a section about crimes involving drugs or alcohol. So this is what is happening outside of the work time frame. The prior policies were all spelling out what do you do when you suspect that someone um, may be under the influence at work. But the other thing that you need to spell out is what happens when things happen off the clock. How are you going to handle that? How are you going to support them? What are the protocols? What are the testing procedures? Um, What are the consequences for them as an employee of yours if something is happening outside of work? And in particular, you need to spell out the reporting timeframes and your expectations for them while you're waiting for uh, results on any testing that that may happen. And then um, the last two pieces are a definition section is really handy. So spelling out your definition for company premises, does that include their car in your parking lot? Does it include the parking lot itself? Does it include their locker? Does it include their cabinet? Whatever whatever it is, you need to spell it out crystal clear for them in the handbook. You also need to spell out the definition of illegal versus legal drugs. Um, What the definition of refusing to cooperate looks like. This is where your employment attorney can come in so handy because you can put in there all of these things. And when they take a look at it, they should be able to help you clean up your language so that it is legally appropriate for your state. And then the last piece is, is uh, enforcement. 
So you need to spell out for them who is responsible for overseeing and supervising this for the company. And that's for two reasons. One is it's going to set reasonable expectations for your employees who might be in supervisory capacities where it is their job to police and supervise these situations should they occur. And also for the employees to know who would be monitoring and overseeing and potentially having access to their confidential medical information. Um, So those are all those are all the pieces of policy that you should have in your handbook. And I know some of you may be thinking, holy crap. She just gave us like 10 minutes worth of stuff. And I had the part that says we have a drug free workplace. And that is okay, because (laughs) I have been managing now for, I think I'm just, this is March, so I'm hitting my 17th year anniversary, and it's only been probably in the last 10 years where I have really honed in on including all of this information. And part of it comes from having had the benefit of being an employer in California, which is one of the most litigious states in the country. Um, and having the most difficult employment laws to support. But the other piece of it is just spending the time to educate myself and make sure that I I know what's included. Um, A lot of us have local, um, local offices for our state employment office. Like you might have a local office in your city that represents the bigger state employment office. Check with them. One of the most beneficial, um, continuing education opportunities that I always made sure to take advantage of was our local office for the state employment uh, department used to do a class every year with updates to all the new labor laws. And it was like a one day thing and they would give us lunch. And if you were a, um, a member of the, if you were an SHRM, um, Remember, you got a discount. If not, you paid the full price. But going to that every year and hearing what the employment law updates were, were the things that started me thinking about some of this stuff. So um, processes protect everybody. What does your handbook say? You got to spell it out. You got to, for the love of God, we have to be getting their signatures. We have to be documenting and proving that we've spelled all of this out for them. Um, There are plenty of resources within veterinary medicine for um, having some of these policies and protocols. You can get, you can buy blank templates um, from a bunch of different uh, resources. AHA has some great resources. Um, Phil Siebert, the safety vet, has some great resources, including policies and protocols. Um, If you don't know where to start, start with one of the templates. Um, but work on spelling those things out one at a time. And then the other piece to this is um, the question that Dr. Never Inhaled asked, which is, how do I approach the subject member uh, as the subject matter with the team member who both was accused and the person who was the accuser? And I would say that that is one of the most common questions that um, I get asked when it comes to have somebody that is acting really weird and I think they might be high at work. Now what? Where do you start when you have an active uh, suspicion that someone may be high at work? So we first start with receiving the complaint. So here's where I'm going to say that confidentiality is a must. We have to 
we have to protect their privacy. And so this is where, um, for me, the next step is the most important, which is that you have to actually directly observe the employee. So if you've received a complaint like Dr. Never Inhaled had from an, a member of their team, the next step should be to watch that employee with your own eyes. And this is where I love the rule of two or the rule of three, which says that if you have a suspicion and you observe it yourself, there should always be two or three members of the leadership team from your hospital who are bound by confidentiality that verify what you're seeing. Because we want to give employees the benefit of the doubt. And if we are going to, um, if we are going to have a conversation with someone about reasonable suspicion, we want to make sure that we actually do have reasonable suspicion. So this is where you directly observe the employee and then ask somebody else to directly observe the employee, not just any member of the team. Um, someone who is bound by confidentiality. So ideally a floor lead, um, your practice owner, if you've observed it as the manager or vice versa, if you're the, pra- if Dr. Never Inhaled is the practice owner, um, asking their practice manager, Hey, I just watched this person and I would really like for you to go observe them and let me know what you're seeing. Um, and then the next phase of that is documentation. Everybody who's observed the employee has to document in writing what they observed. And this is where, again, the things I was saying, the things that we should be looking for are odors, movements, looking at their eyes, looking at their face, listening to their speech, looking at their emotions. Are they argue? Are they really agitated? Are they really argumentative? Are they very irritable? Are they falling asleep on the job? Um, actions, specific clear actions, were they? Um, you know, nonstop yawning? Are they twitching? Um, are they having shakes in their in their hands, um, spasms or involuntary eye movements? What are their inactions? Are they are they passed out sleeping? Are they um, unconscious? Do they have no reaction to questions when you ask them questions? Those are all very clear things that you can document that help, um, your case when it comes to reasonable suspicion and can help you prove that you're applying your policies fairly across the board. And then two, two really, uh, one really big last one, which is you definitely need to document if someone, um, refuses to test when you get to, to talking to them. So, um, but I'm, jumping ahead of myself there. So you're documenting what, what are you observing and doing it following the rule of two or three, always have two or three sets of eyes and always make sure that they're bound by confidentiality in a pinch. Absolutely. You can ask a trusted member of the team. If there's nobody else there, I've been in that situation where there's nobody else from the management team there. Sometimes you just need a witness. And so that's where I would have a conversation with that person and kind of like, (laughs) kind of like deputizing them say, Hey, look, I have an emergency situation. I need you to observe an employee for me. And here's what I need you to know about confidentiality. Can you, before I, 
before I ask you to go, before I tell you who I would like you to go observe, um, are you willing to, to, um, uphold the rules of confidentiality for the practice and then document that document that you had the conversation, um, and what they agreed to and ask them to sign it. It doesn't have to be fancy, literally can get a piece of paper and write it out, type it up on the computer and say, you, you have a suspicion of an incident with an employee. You've discussed confidentiality with this member of your team and they're agreeing to uphold the confidentiality and medical information that they may be privy to as, as a result of being asked to observe uh, this employee. Date it, sign it. You're covering your bases there. And then after you've done the observation, the number one thing to do is remove the employee from safety sensitive situations. This is both for their own safety and for the safety of patients. So if you have somebody that you are suspicious is under the influence at work um, or, or may be impaired at work, asking them, hey, do you want to take a break? Go hang out in my office for a few minutes. I have something I need to talk to you about, but why don't you go on upstairs and hang out for a few minutes? Whatever you need to do to get them away from a situation where it may be unsafe for them, it may be unsafe for their coworkers, or maybe unsafe for patients. And then that leads us to the part where we have to make a decision. But before we can make a decision, we have to have a conversation with the employee, right? Because at this point, all we've done is observe their behaviors. Making a decision to have a conversation with them is the first step. So we want to meet with the employee. And this is where, again, we need to observe the, the rule of two or three, and there needs to be a witness to the meeting. And so the person who's leading the meeting, probably the manager, but maybe the practice owner, needs to clearly explain to the team member what has been observed and what has been documented by ma- by the management team. And they also need to explain t- to them that in order to rule out the possibility that they may be in violation of the company's drug or alcohol policy, that you're going to send them for a drug or alcohol test. Um, and it's important to let them know by explaining it in that manner you are demonstrating to them that you haven't jumped to any conclusions. You have observed behaviors, you have concerns, and you would like to rule out the possibility that they violated your protocols and policies. You are on their side. You are expecting the test to come back negative. You want to rule it out, right? When you use that language, you're demonstrating to them that you're not jumping to conclusions. You're following procedures. You're applying it consistently across the board to any member of your team. And that if they are not under the influence of drug or drugs or alcohol, that the test is going to prove that. After you have laid that out for them, the, the next piece of that is getting their consent. And this is where things often get sticky because if someone is under the influence, they may refuse. Someone may refuse who's not under the influence. You need to document it either way. They don't have to sign it. You can document with your witness that they refuse to sign it. And your two signatures on the form um, generally are evidence enough in terms of documentation. If they're willing to go and get tested, having them sign consent is really, really important. And then 
in your handbook, you need to spell out this whole process for what happens when you have active suspicion, because the next phase is really, really important. You have to have a plan for how are you going to transport that this person and how are you going to get them tested? And so this is where knowing what your insurance policy covers, knowing what your workers comp policies cover, knowing what your uh, closest access to drugs and alcohol testing is, to your place of employment, um, knowing what hours they're available, what their protocols and policies are. All of these things are things that you should know about ahead of time. And unfortunately for a lot of us, we don't think about until we actually need them. And then it's often a problem because we can't get in, they're closed, we don't have an alternative, we don't have a plan for how we're going to get them there. And their safety is really important. If you suspect that they're under the influence of work, under no circumstances should you let them leave under their own, um, under their, their own steam. They should, you should have it spelled out. Are you going to call them an Uber and you're going to pay for an Uber or taxi to send them to go? Is somebody from the team going to drive them? What does that look like? And again, what that looks like is going to be dependent upon your, your local laws. And this is where your employment lawyer comes in handy. But knowing what the plan is going to be for transporting them and getting them to testing. And then the, the last piece of that is what do you do while you're waiting? So once you've sent them for testing, after they test, what's the, what's the test window? Is it immediate? Are they doing a breathalyzer where you're going to have the results back immediately? Or are they doing um, a urine test? that then is going to get sent out? Are they doing the testing there on the spot? What does that look like? And you need to have a plan for all of that because your employee needs to know what's going to happen while you're waiting for the results. So all of those things are things that should be, um, should be spelled out. And the thing that I will say that we often, often miss a step as employers is the last piece, which is that for most of us, our drug and alcohol policy says we have drug-free workplace and any employee that is suspected or found to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol at work is subject to immediate termination. Legally, as an employer, you have a couple of options. If someone test positive when you have an incident and you send them, you have the option to terminate them if that's what your policy dictates. As someone who is uh, in recovery and as someone who um, has seen how very little we as an industry do to support members of our team who are struggling with substance abuse problems and or addiction, I think something that we highly, highly underutilize is what's called a last chance agreement. And so this is a process and a mechanism by which when we have an employee who has documented that there's a problem, is found to be under the influence at work, or has had an incident off the clock that is related to, to drugs or alcohol, our first move often is to terminate them and get rid of the problem. And I would really, really argue that we have a strong, strong, strong need to support people in our field who are struggling 
with these problems because they, I, I, they are all of us. We have members of our team. I promise you right now who are struggling and who haven't acknowledged that they're struggling. And unfortunately there is a lot of stigma when it comes to addiction and substance abuse, particularly in the medical field. And so our first, our first um, thought as an owner, as manager is let's protect the business. You know, we don't, we don't want someone stealing controlled drugs. We don't want someone hurting pets. We don't want someone making mistakes if they're under the influence at work. And so our gut reaction is to cut out that person and that problem from the situation and remove them from the situation entirely. And you can do that. And it is totally within your, within your purview. And you just need to spell it out in your manual. If that's what you want to do, totally, totally within your, your rights, Um, another very underutilized option is the last chance agreement. And what this is, is a spell out in your policy that says if someone is found to be, um, under the influence at work, that they, um, there's an official document that they will sign and you will spell out. What does last chance look like in your practice? You have a zero tolerance for drugs or alcohol at work and you recognize that this is a human and this is a member of your team. And, and substance abuse and addiction are real problems and you want to support them in dealing with those problems. And this is where you have the opportunity to spell out what are your rules? What are the hoops that they're going to jump through to continue to be employed by you? And so this can be things like they have to go to meetings, they have to be um, go through an inpatient recovery system, an outpatient recovery. The, again, this is where knowing the resources available to you what is covered under your health insurance? If you offer it as an employer, it's paramount that you understand what is covered and what is not when it comes to addiction and substance abuse so that you can spell those things out for them and let them know what does it look like? Are you going to send them for random drug tests? For what time period? Six months, 12 months, forever? This is where working with an employment attorney, both to have the forms to help you document and also knowing what makes sense, what is smart, what is um, what is ethical to support our teams and also to protect ourselves in our in our business. It's not meant to be a bleeding heart gesture that we're gonna let anybody who violates our rules stay on as an employee. It is meant to acknowledge that there are circumstances where someone being under the influence at work might be a cry for help. And we may have an opportunity to help them um, get get clean, get sober, um, get support. Do you have an EAP? Do they have access to that? If you don't, do they know what local resources are available to them? The bottom line is whatever your options are, and no matter how you choose to handle it as an employer, if you don't have all of that spelled out for them before there is an issue, the problem lays at your feet. And this is where you have to protect yourself as an employer. And so the best time to ask all of these questions is before something happens. So if you're one of, if you're one of those people who's listening is like, oh dear God, all of this stuff that Stephanie just talked about, I don't have any of it. I don't even know if I have a drug-free workplace section in my handbook. I'm going to have to go look that up. Know that you're not alone. <laughs> know that no one is judging you. 
Um, I'm sharing this with you guys because that, that was me. I was, I was in your shoes. I didn't have any of this and I learned a lot of hard lessons, um, over the years. And I am a big advocate for being able to spell it out for the team so that they know both what is expected, what they can expect and what we can expect back from them in return. So, um, that's it. That's the soapbox. I really hope that some of this was helpful for you guys. Um, I hope Dr. Never Inhaled, you feel like you, you would know how to approach the team member who had been accused. And look, if you didn't approach them in the moment, I wouldn't do anything about it now. I wouldn't, I would maybe document and put it a note in their file about the conversation that you had. Um, but if you didn't document it the way that I talked about, uh, during this episode at that time, I would put a note in their file and then I would just be aware and I wouldn't say anything to them. And I wouldn't say anything to the accuser. The one thing that's really important on that front is you thank them for sharing their concerns. And then from everything you do from that moment forward, the, protection of privacy and confidentiality for the employee who is being accused is paramount. And you need to make sure that you are doing everything you can to uphold that privacy and confidentiality for them. And that means keeping the accuser out of it. Don't have a follow-up conversation. They don't need, they don't need to know. It's a private, it's a private HR matter from that point forward. So I would, uh, I would not have a conversation with them if you haven't yet. And in the future, those are some things that I would be watching out for. And hopefully now you feel a little bit more prepared for how you would document it um, and things to be on the lookout for. So I hope that this was helpful for some of you guys. And Andy and I will be back next week. Same time, same bat channel together again. So I hope you guys all have a great week and take great care. And we will talk to you soon. And that is our episode. That's what we got for you. Stephanie Goss in the house. God, she's amazing. If you like this episode, uh, please, please do the things that people ask uh, people who listen to podcasts to do. Mainly, uh, share with your friends. Let people know that you like the episode and maybe they might like it too. And uh, consider writing an honest review for us at iTunes. It means the world. It helps people find us. Uh, it fluffs our pillows. It, it pats us on the head. makes us feel like making more episodes. All that stuff is super great and super, super useful. So anyway, guys, thanks for being here. Uh, we will see you next week. And I'll be back. Back again with, uh, with Stephanie. So anyway, Dynamic Duo back in action next week. See you then. Bye.